September 5th, 2013, Hilo, Hawaii, Skype class, Shrimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikit Save, Text 19. Jayam Vishnu Pad, Paramahamsa, Parabrajagajaya, Asatara Satishri Srimadis Dhamangre, Sesi Bhakti Vedanta Swami Maharaj, Prabhupada Ki Jai. Iskan founder Jaya Shila Prabhupada Ki Jai, Nantakoti Vaishnava Rindu Ki Jai, Namacharya Shila Haridas Thakur Ki Jai, Prem Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Adoraita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Rindu Ki Jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai, Navajit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Gangamai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai, Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Premanande. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga, all glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prashtaya Bhutale, Sri Mati Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane, Namaste Saraswati Deve, Gauravani Pacharani, Nibhisesa Sinivani Paskutyade Satarani, Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamscha, Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Bitam Stam Sajivam, Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Jaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 1, Chapter 8 Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikit Saved Text 19 Maya Javani Kachanam Agnahokshajamavyayam Nalakshasemudhadrisha Natonatyadaroyata Javanika Curtain Achanam Covered by Agna, ignorant, ahoksajam, beyond the range of material conception, transcendental, avyayam, irreproachable, na, not, lakshase, Observed Mudadrisha by the foolish observer Nataha artist 
Natya Dadaha, dressed as a player, Yata as Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Being beyond the limited the range of limited sense perception, you are the eternally irreproachable factor covered by the curtain of deluding energy. You are invisible to the foolish observer, exactly as an actor dressed as a player is not recognized. Purport. In the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Sri Krishna affirms that less intelligent persons mistake him to be like an ordinary man like us, and thus they deride him. The same is confirmed herein by Queen Kunti. The less intelligent persons are those who rebel against the authority of the Lord. Such persons are known as asuras. The asuras cannot recognize the Lord's authority. When the Lord himself appears amongst us as Rama, Nisinga, Varaha, or in his original form as Krishna, he performs many wonderful acts which are humanly impossible. As we shall find in the tenth canto of this great literature, Lord Sri Krishna exhibited his humanly impossible activities even from the days of his lying on the lap of his mother. He killed the Putana witch, although she smeared her breast with poison just to kill the Lord. The Lord sucked her breast like a natural baby, and he sucked out her very life also. Similarly, he lifted the Govardhan hill, just as a boy picks up a frog's umbrella, and stood several days continuously just to give protection to the residents of Rindavan. These are some of the superhuman activities of the Lord described in the authoritative Vedic literatures like the Puranas, Itihasas, Histories, and Upanishads. He has delivered wonderful instructions in the shape of the Bhagavad Gita. He has shown marvelous capacities as a hero, as a householder, as a teacher, and as a renouncer. He is accepted as the Supreme Personality of Godhead by such authoritative personalities as Vyasa, Devala, Sita, Narada, Madhva, Shankara, Ramanuja, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Jiva Goswami, Vishwanath Chakravati, Bhaktisanatha Saraswati, and all other authorities of the line. He himself has declared as much in many places of the authentic literatures, and yet there is a class of men with demoniac mentality who are always reluctant to accept the Lord as a supreme absolute truth. This is partially due to their poor fund of knowledge and partially to their stubborn obstinacy which results from various misdeeds in the past and present. Such persons could not recognize Lord Sri Krishna, even when he was present before them. Another difficulty is that those who depend more on their imperfect senses cannot realize him as the Supreme Lord. Such persons are like the modern scientists. They want to know everything by their experimental knowledge. But it is not possible to know the Supreme Person by imperfect experimental knowledge. He is described herein as a hoksaja, or beyond the range of experimental knowledge. All our senses are imperfect. We claim to observe everything and anything, but we must admit that we can observe things under certain material conditions only, which are also beyond our control. The Lord is beyond the observation of sense perception. Queen Kunti accepts this deficiency of the conditioned soul, especially of the woman class who are less intelligent. For less intelligent men, there must be such things as temples, mosques, or churches, so that they may begin to recognize the authority of the Lord and hear about him from authorities in such holy places. For less intelligent men, this beginning of spiritual life is essential, and only foolish men decry the establishment of such places of worship, which are required to raise the standard of spiritual attributes for the mass of people. 
for the less intelligent persons bowing down before the authority of the Lord, as generally done in the temples, mosques, or churches, is as beneficial as it is for the advanced devotees to meditate upon him by active service. Maya janavikachanam agnyahokshajamavyayam nalakshyaye muradrisha nato natyadaro yata being beyond the range of limited sense perception, you are, eternal, you are the eternally irreproachable factor covered by the curtain of deluding energy. You are invisible to the foolish observer exactly as an actor dressed as a player is not recognized. So I remember when we were in New York, the devotees there used to perform the Ramayana three times a week. Uh, later I joined that troupe. And the devotee who played Ravana, Lokamangala, who has since uh, left his body, was a very mellow and friendly brahmachari. But when he was Ravana, he was really scary. And my son, who was about four years old at the time, would get so scared and, and hide under my clothes whenever he would see Ravana on stage. But when he'd see the actual person, not dressed up as the actor, walking around the temple, that was his buddy. So here Kunti says that we don't recognize Krishna just like you don't recognize an actor. It can be your own uh, child or your friend or whatever, but when they're dressed up, you don't recognize who they are. You know, I, I've had that experience when I'm in a drama that sometimes people will say, oh, I didn't know who you are. Some years ago in Govardhan at the Govardhan retreat, my daughter was playing Krishna, and afterwards Satyanandan Maharaj said to her, when Krishna came onto the stage, I was thinking, who is that? Who is that? Who is that? I don't recognize that person. He said, then I decided I'll just appreciate that Krishna is manifesting in the drama. He said, the whole time I didn't recognize that it was you dressed up as Krishna. So Krishna himself, of course, is like that. Even when he appears on this, wor- on this world, as Krishna is referring to, as Prabhupada is referring to in this purport, avajadantimam mudha manusim tanimashritam, that the mudas they don't recognize they don't recognize oh here's Krishna here's Krishna they think oh he's just an ordinary man like me they don't they don't see him for what he is and then there's this curtain Quinty says the curtain of the deluding energy in Prabhupada in his lecture on this verse he talks about how we can't see the deities when the they're covered by a curtain. They're there, but we can't see them. So, in a similar way, we can't see Krishna. He's covered by this curtain of yoga maya. We don't, we don't know where he is. Or as Krishna says, Mata partyam nanyat kinchirasti janandaya maya sarvamitam protam sutre manigana iva sutre manigana iva he's, he's hidden, less like the thread is hidden under the pearls. And Prabhupada talks about how we can't understand Krishna because we're fools, right? The asura and the mudha drisa, as mentioned here. They don't know. They think that I'm just an ordinary man. Someone doesn't see God at all. They say there's no God, they're an atheist, or even God comes and they can't see him. 
So we may say, well, wait a minute, I, I'm a devotee of Krishna and still I can't see him. How do I see God? That song by George Harrison, which had a lot to do with my becoming a devotee or trying to become a devotee of Krishna. I really want to see you. You know, don't we feel like that? I want to see God. I want to see God. I, I want to be with God. But it seems like it's so hard. It, it takes so long. Hmm? Well, that's why it's so hard, because there's this curtain. There's this curtain in front of him, and even if the curtain is removed, it's just like an actor on a stage that we can't see. So let's go through what the problems are, why we can't see God, and then we can get into how we can see God. How is it we don't see God, and how can we see God? So here Srila Prabhupada's talking about some reasons why we can't see God. Abhijanantima mudha, as Kunti says, mudadrisha, because we're just idiots. Also, I'm sorry, mudha means like that, it means like a fool, like a donkey. We took the kids to the zoo yesterday, and we saw some donkeys. So there's a lot of human beings that are just like that. Oh, there's no God. Without even thinking, without even considering, they're just like animals. Get up, go to work, get some food, get some money, have sex, you know, watch the football game, drink some beer and go to sleep. You know, that's not any different from the animals. The animals are just eating, sleeping, mating, and defending without ever considering, who am I? Is there a God? How did I get here? Now, the human being is supposed to inquire, what's going on? So there are that just absolute atheists. Prabhupada says here, they rebel against the authority of the Lord. This is my world for me to enjoy. I am perfect, powerful, and happy. Siddham, I am perfect. I don't need anything. And we might say, well, that has nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm a religious person. I'm engaged in some process of, of worship. But it's so deep, this rebelling against the authority of the Lord. I am perfect, powerful, and happy. You know, I'm, I'm such a devoted person. Like even the demons, they say, I'll perform some sacrifice, I'll give some charity, and thus I will rejoice. Most atheists think they're good people. You know, how much do we do that? How much do we think, oh yeah, I'm a good religious person. That's not how the great devotees pray. The great devotees pray, I, I don't have any credits. I don't really perform any devotional service. I don't really have anything at all that's wonderful. They don't say, well, I'm getting better and better. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I've given up all these things, and now I'm just pure and wonderful. That's how, that's how the demons talk. So if we have that mentality... Then we're like the atheists who rebelled against the authority of the Lord. The main quality of the asuras is pride. And we've talked about this a lot, how in this world we're all defending our pride. <laughs> I mean, it's fine to defend your body, you know, take some medicine when you're sick and have a roof over your head, although there are great devotees who don't even do that kind of thing. But... You know, we often spend a lot of time defending our pride, 
I'm right, I'm not wrong, how dare you say that I'm wrong? How dare you say I did anything wrong? As soon as somebody suggests that we made a mistake or suggests that we've done something wrong or that there's some problem in our character, we, we bristle <laughs> like a porcupine putting up their, their spikes. Huh? And we just, we, we just say how wonderful we are. And if we really feel threatened, we'll say how terrible the other person is. Well, what about you? You do this and you do that. So this is those who rebel against the authority of the Lord. This is the prime symptom. Even if we're saying, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe that Krishna is God. I accept that Krishna is the supreme personality of God. I'd like to be a Muslim. You just have to make a decoration, right? Allah is God and Muhammad is his servant. Boom, Muslim. So we might think like that. I believe in God and Krishna is God. Okay, now I'm not an atheist anymore. But if we're busy maintaining our pride and if we're, if we're rebelling against the authority of the Lord, then we should understand that's one reason that we can't see Krishna, that he remains covered, that the curtain remains covered. And then Prabhupada gives the example uh, here of a poor fund of knowledge. Prabhupada loves to use this term. Right? The poor fund of knowledge. So we may not see God because we don't have enough knowledge. Our knowledge bank account is deficient, a very fancy and euphemistic way of saying you're ignorant. <laughs> and so if we want to see Krishna, first thing we have to become humble and we have to accept the authority of the Lord. Next thing is that we have to have knowledge. Prabhupada would say our business is to know God and to love him. You can't uh, see God without loving him, and you can't love him without knowing him. You can't see God without loving him, and you can't love him without knowing him. Why can't you see him without loving him? Well, I don't let people see me if they're envious of me. I don't, I mean, I remember one time I went to a place where there, there was a person who really didn't have anything to do with me, but was being very critical of me and causing me a lot of trouble. And so when I was there, I didn't want to see that person. I would even walk all the way around buildings to avoid seeing them. So Krishna doesn't want to be seen by somebody who's envious and, and nasty. Krishna wants to be seen by those who are his well-wishers. And how can you be Krishna's well-wisher if you don't know him? So one reason we, we may not see Krishna is we don't have knowledge of Krishna. We're not hearing about Krishna from the great persons, from the great souls. Then Prabhupada also says something here, interesting. He says that one reason you don't see Krishna, we don't see Krishna is due to stubborn obstinacy, which results from various misdeeds in the past and present. So therefore Krishna says in the seventh chapter of the Bhagavad Gita that only those who perform pious activities in this life and in previous lives can come to devotional service. Of course, Krishna also says that even if you're the most sinful of all sinners, you can cross over the ocean of material miseries by his grace. So we shouldn't think that first we have to do pious activities and then we can perform Krishna consciousness. That's karma-covered bhakti. That pious activities are a necessary prerequisite. They're not. One can become pious by bhakti itself. Bhakti is the most pious activity. Bhakti is beyond a pious activity. But if one is engaged in willful, sinful activities and at the same time performing bhakti, then one will get this stubborn obstinacy. Therefore, we say that in addition to the direct activities of bhakti, 
such as chanting minimum 16 rounds of the Hare Krishna mantra, worshipping the deity, offering one's food. We say no illicit sex, no intoxication, no meat eating, and no gambling. If one's doing... Bhakti is not dependent on being pious. Bhakti is not dependent on being pious. Otherwise, a Jamila wouldn't have been able to see the Vishnu Dudas. A Jamila was chanting the name of his son, Narayana. Hey, Narayana, come here. Narayana, take your meals. Narayana, sit down. At the same time, he was engaged in grievous sinful activities. He was making his money by cheating and theft. He had left his properly married wife and was living with his girlfriend, having children in an unmarried state with his girlfriend. He had abandoned his elderly parents, so many things. So he was engaged in sinful activity at the same time, and yet Bhakti was able to sprout in his heart as soon as he had the association of the Vishnu Dudas. And his chanting of the name of Narayana was not hampered by his performing sinful activities. Of course, Ajamila was not willfully performing sins with the idea that they would be counteracted by his chanting. He was not committing the seven offenses on chanting, thinking, well, as, as long as I'm chanting, I can do any sins. He wasn't even really realizing that he was chanting. Although he'd been a Brahmana as a boy, and therefore was inclined to name his son Narayana, he didn't have a mentality of cheating Krishna. It was, it was sort of, we call this namabhas, a reflection of the holy name. It was, it was not deliberate. But the point is that we can see from the story of Ajamila that, or another example is the prostitute who tried to make Haridas Thakur fall down. So she's coming and hearing Haridas Thakur chanting, and she's circumambulating Tulsi, because she was part of her culture. At the same time, her desire was to defame Haridas Thakur. She didn't purify that desire first and then start chanting. It was her chanting and her hearing and her worship of Tulsi that purified her of desire, of material desire. So one can perform bhakti immediately, even in a sinful condition, as long as one's not chanting with the idea that this chanting is going to eradicate one's sins. We should understand that if we perform sins, that those sins create with us a reaction that gives us a stubborn obstinacy, that makes it just very difficult to surrender. Stubborn obstinacy obstinacy is the opposite of surrender. You see this very clearly in little children. You know, come and, and, and do this, come and play this game with me. You know, you're even offering something nice for them. No, I don't want to, I don't want to. And they scream and they have a tantrum on the floor. So with little children, it's very obvious that, yeah, this is just foolish. Mudadrisha, this is, this is like a fool. Why don't you want to do this thing that's good for you? Come and eat. No, I don't want to, right? But if we're performing sinful activities, we'll have the same kind of stubborn obstinacy. And therefore, we won't be able to see Krishna. And we won't even be aware that we're like that. Little children, when they're being stubborn and obstinate, they don't perceive themselves like that. They perceive themselves as being very reasonable. (laughs) They do. They think, you know, this thing isn't good for me. I want to do something else. It's, It's quite interesting. So when we have this stubborn obstinacy, we also we're not going to perceive it like that. Our vision will become clouded, as Quinty says here. There'll be this curtain. We, we, we won't mudadrisa. Our vision is, is distorted. 
by sinful activities. Therefore, we say, although bhakti is not dependent on material piety at all, bhakti is independent, still, we say that if you're performing sinful activities, those sinful activities will create a stubborn obstinacy within you and you will find surrender to be almost impossible. It will be virtually impossible. Not absolutely impossible, but for all intents and purposes, it will be impossible. You'll create a kind of resistance in yourself. Uh, That is because sin is against the very nature of the soul. Then Prabhupada gives another problem. He says another difficulty is that we may be trying to understand Krishna just through prachaksha and anuman. Prachaksha means the perception of the senses, and anuman means by logic. We may be saying, okay, let me just figure out Krishna with my brain. In this way, we won't be able to see him. And I've talked about this many times before, but I find it quite interesting that even in the modern day, when the prevailing philosophy is that truth can be understood simply through sense perception and logic, that still those who propound such a philosophy know that it doesn't work. So when you go up through a a bachelor's degree, up through undergraduate degree, they'll tell you, oh, through sense perception and logic, you can understand the world. You're in the master's program. They'll tell you, through sense perception and logic, you can understand truth in the world. And once you get to the PhD level, they tell you something different. So I had this class I've, I've mentioned many times before that was the philosophy of research. I'd say it was the only class I had to take that I would say was pure mental speculation. You know, after, after the first class, I said, wow, this is what Prabhupada calls mental speculation. So I mostly sat in the back reading the Road to Madastakur's songs. But one very interesting thing in the class was they gave us a, a little book about the problems of empiricism and positivism, or it's also called modernism. And all these three things, empiricism, modernism, positivism, refer to a philosophy that states there is objective truth and that objective truth can be understood through sense perception and logic. So Srila Prabhupada, in many of his purports, including the one we're looking at today, argues against this position. Now we should mention, just as an aside, I'm not going to get into this at all, is that there's another pervading atheistic philosophy called post-positivism or post-modernism, which says there is no objective truth and everybody creates their own truth. Yatamat Tatapat, Prabhupada also argues against that position. So there's two prevailing atheistic positions. One that says there's no objective truth, everybody creates their own reality. Yatamat Tatapat, that's called post-positivism or post-modernism, which I'm not going to talk about today. And then there's the other atheistic position that says there is objective truth, and that objective, there is objective truth, and that objective truth is, can be understood through sense perception and logic. And that's what Shiva Prabhupada is saying today. He says that if, you, if one holds this position, one cannot see God. So again, it's interesting that the very people who hold this position tell you what's wrong with it, and they give you six things that are wrong with it. One is called that you cannot ascribe absolute causation to two things because there may be unconsidered factors. So let's say that you see that whenever there is a fire, there's also a fire truck. You might say, well, fire trucks cause fires. Or you might say that fires cause fire trucks. But neither is the case. 
So just because two things occur together doesn't mean that one is the cause of the other. So we're trying to, again, this is saying how we're trying to find God. What is the cause? So just with senses and logic, you can see the two things are related, but that doesn't necessarily mean you can ascertain what is causing what. There could be a third cause. There could be other factors that are involved. Right? Uh, the next problem is that induction gives you probable results, not absolute results. So Srila Prabhupada gives this example many, many times, although it's not the point he makes in today's purport, that you can say every person we've known up until this point in time has died, therefore everybody will die. But maybe there's a person you haven't seen, maybe you haven't seen everybody, and maybe there'll be someone in the future who hasn't died. So with sense perception and logic, all you can say is, as far as we know, this is not false. You can never say, never say, this is true. So just by observing, you observe this instance, that instance, this instance, that instance, and you make a generality. You say, all right, all of these instances lead me to this conclusion. But there may be some instances you missed, or there may be some instances you have not seen. An example often given in the literature is that all swans are white. But in Australia, there's black swans. Until you go to Australia and you see the black swans, you think that all swans are white. Or when the duck-billed platypus was first found and the scientists thought that somebody had sewed together parts of different animals, it changed their definition of what was a mammal. So that's the second problem. The second problem is that through senses and logic, the best you can say is, as far as we know, this is not false. You can never say this is true. A third thing is a, a very interesting point, and that is that everything we perceive is affected by what's socially acceptable by our particular group at a particular time. Most people are, are very unaware of this project of logic and reason and induction. They don't realize that they're culturally conditioned. A good example of this is, say, the age of consent. So in Srila Prabhupada's day, people were married as children. Prabhupada talks about his father and his father-in-law's parents and in-laws, that they had the marriage ceremony as children and they lived together right after puberty. You know, Gandhi was married at 13, Bhakti Vinod was married at 14, Lord Chaitanya was married at 14. And the girls, of course, were even younger. The girls were like 11, 12. When Prabhupada was married, his wife was 11. So at the present time, we consider this criminal. And our perception of something, therefore, is very, very colored by our culture. And of course, the reverse situation is true. So when Vila Prabhupada was growing up, or even when my parents were growing up, children conceived out of marriage did not inherit the parents' property. And they were often shunned by society. So that's not true anymore. At the present time, uh, now 40% of children in America are conceived outside of marriage. And we don't have any particular social stigma on them at all. I mean, I don't even remember when I was growing up, there was a song, Love Child, you know, I was a love child and I don't want to produce a love child. It's a thing of shame. But that's not true anymore. So what's considered good and what's considered bad radically changes according to culture. What's considered good at, at, at one point in time is considered bad at another point of time. 
And the fact that we are culturally conditioned changes how we view and interpret facts. It changes how we view and interpret even scientific facts. This bias operates primarily without our conscious awareness. We just think, well, of course, you know, people can't get married until they're 16 or 18. I mean, today, 20 is considered young marriage. But that's a culturally conditioned idea. So, again, we we don't see it like that. We just see that it's a self-evident, obvious fact. Such is not the case. Okay, the fourth problem with just logic and reason is on a personal level, that what's obvious to me is not obvious to others. And we see this all the time in our personal relationships. A lot of our arguments with others are because what's obvious to me is not obvious to you. I'll say, but it's obvious, can't you see? Here's the logic, here's the reason. And the other person says, I don't see that at all. This is what's obvious to me. You'll say, well, that's not obvious to me. And people can go on arguing for years on these points. You know, it's, it's interesting. Well, we'll get to that. Okay, fifth is that our observation is based on what we expect to perceive. Now, this is another internal bias. So the example given of a card experiment in 1949 done by Bruner and Postman where they showed people a deck of playing cards and mixed in there were anomalous cards, things like red spades and black hearts, and people didn't recognize them because they didn't expect to see them. They'd see the red spades and they'd call it either a diamond or a spade. They'd put it into their pre-existing categories and the researchers would slow down the rate at which they were showing the cards until gradually 75% of the people would recognize, and it would be like an aha moment, like, wait a minute, that's that's a funny card. But 25% of the people never recognize the strange cards. Isn't that interesting? So we see what we expect to see. This is very true in our human relationships. Once we decided that a certain person... Is, is our friend or is our enemy, then we, re, we reinterpret their behavior according to that parameter. Once we put some sort of label on somebody, there, there's so much research done in this in education that if a teacher gets a class of students and they've heard beforehand, this kid is really smart, this kid is really foolish, or this kid is a troublemaker, the teacher's behavior with that child will be different from the beginning. And that child's behavior will be different. We interpret activities, we interpret facts, we interpret perceptions according to pre-existing expectations. What we expect to see, that's what we see. Again, this is a really big factor in relationships. If we expect that somebody's critical of us, then we'll hear what they're saying as criticism, even if it's not, which is, of course, quite frustrating. Okay, the last one is that evidence does not present a particular interpretation. So this is the relationship of projection, anuman, that we gather perception through our senses, that's projection, then anuman, we analyze that perception. And again, going back to the other one, we may think, well, this is the obvious interpretation of this sensory data. But the problem is that that's not the case. One can see this phenomena 
with criminal investigation. There's a lot of people who get accused of a crime and incarcerated who are later found to be innocent. So how, how did that happen? How that happened was the people looked at the evidence and came up with a story about the evidence. And that story was wrong. So if any of us have ever read, you know, mystery books, detective books, which I used to love those when I was young. I always loved puzzle solving. You know, and, and you're looking at the evidence and you're saying, okay, this is the criminal. And it's not. It's somebody else. So this is true in general. When we try to perceive things, we're, we're looking at the facts, we're hearing the facts, we're touching the facts, we're gathering information through our senses, and we make up a story that has the facts make sense, but that story could be wrong. The real story could be something else. And this uh, sixth point is that there's an infinite number of stories that will explain the facts. So again, we might say, just like with the atheist, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm just hearing the Shastra, and that's how I understand God. But we may indeed be hearing the Shastra in this mood of sense, perception, and logic. In fact, we find this very thing happening even among devotees. The devotees are convinced that the way they're understanding the scripture and the way they're understanding the words of the acharyas is through their sense, perception, and logic and their intelligence. And therefore, they engage in unlimited arguments based on sense, perception, and intelligence. But such arguments cannot give us Krishna. Then Krishna remains invisible to us. And there's such a nice verse. Let's see if I can find it quickly. Aha, yes, it's Bhagavatam 6431. Let me offer my respectful obeisances unto the all-pervading Supreme Personality of Godhead who possesses unlimited transcendental qualities, acting from within the cores of the hearts of all philosophers who propagate various views. He causes them to forget their own souls while sometimes agreeing and sometimes disagreeing among themselves. Thus he creates within this material world a situation in which they are unable to come to a conclusion. I offer my obeisances unto him. So if we take to the Shastra with this mood, then we forget our own souls. And perhaps we've had this experience that we're arguing from the Shastra, we're using the Shastra as, as weapons, and we're trying to understand the Shastra with the strength of our own mind and intelligence, and then we forget Krishna. So these are all reasons why we can't see God. Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati gives the example of the wedding party that they, in order to have the wedding, they're going to another village, they get in a boat, and they're rowing the boat, rowing the boat all night, and in the morning they're still at the shore because they didn't pull up the anchor. So we may be trying and trying and trying and trying to see Krishna, but... If we have any or all of these problems, if we're rebelling against the authority of the Lord, being prideful, if we're engaged in sinful activities, if we have a poor fund of knowledge, or if we're relying simply on our sense perception and logic to understand, then we will not be able 
to understand God. Oh, we should also mention here Srila Prabhupada's point about sense perception and logic, uh, which is in addition to the six brought up by those who rely on such methods, that he says our senses are imperfect, that even the gathering of our information, those six points were really dealing more with Anuman than Prachaksha, but even the gathering of our information is faulty that we can only gather information under certain conditions and we cannot control those conditions. I can only see when there's light and I'm not in absolute control over whether or not there's light. I can't see around the corner and so forth and so on. I can't see if there's a lot of fog. So even our ability to gather information is very limited. So how instead should we know God? How should we know God? Uh, We know God by how do we get out of this mudadrisha? We come to Shastra Chakshus. We see through the eyes of Scripture. We uh, understand by the mercy of the Acharyas. We hear not with a mood of analysis with sense perception and logic, but we hear with a mood of relishing and appreciation and love, with a mood of humility, not of arrogance with a life full of piety. And then what do we hear about? So Prabhupada giving us so much in this purport where we could, that we could talk about Krishna. talks about how Krishna killed Putana. So he was just a little baby. Where I'm staying right now, there's a little baby. And he can't do anything. You know, he can cry. And he can... Maybe he can get his hand in his mouth to suck on it. I mean, he's, he's not really capable of doing anything. If you left him alone for a while, he would die. He, wouldn't, he can't even move from one place to another. He can't even turn over or grab something. You can grab your finger if it's right there. But I mean, he can't manipulate anything. And when Krishna was supposedly in that, at that stage of life, he was able to kill a great witch. A great witch Puchana, who was 12 miles long. And Krishna Prabhupada mentions here Govardhan Hill. So Indra was flooding Vrindavan because he was so offended, this pride again. Even a devotee like Indra can get this pride. We shouldn't think that Indra is not a demon. He's a devotee, much better devotee than I am. He's a very great devotee. And still he can be overcome by this pride. Why isn't anybody respecting me? (laughs) Why isn't anybody worshipping me? And he, he was so angry with this pride that he was going to kill everyone in Vrindavan, just like we may get so angry when our pride is offended that we will say, do nasty things to other people. And so Indra was doing this. And Krishna saved the residents of Vrindavan in this incredible way, such a sweet way. This, I love this Govardhan pastime, this Govardhan Leela. Now, Krishna could have paralyzed Indra's arm. He could have just dried up the water. He could have just killed Indra even. So many things he could have done. Just killed the Sambartika clouds. But he did this amazing thing. He picks up a mountain. I mean, who counteracts a flood by picking up a mountain? But he picks up a mountain. And he holds it with one little finger. It's a huge mountain. And it says in Ananda Vrindavan Champu that Krishna tells the residents of Vrindavan that the dirt and rocks have fallen off the edges of Govardhan and made a wall to keep out the water, and he shows them that under the hill there's a whole palatial celestial city in which they can live. And Krishna's holding up the hill, 
of course, for one week, while it's thundering and raining and while Indra is throwing everything at him. So Krishna is very famous as this lifter of Govardhan Hill, and he speaks the Bhagavad Gita. So I remember the first time I read the Bhagavad Gita, I thought, wow, somebody's taken everything I've, I've thought of and everything I've considered and put it in a wonderful way and, you know, spoken truth. Amazing. How, how, does, how does he do that? Who has written this, this, uh, this book? This is not an ordinary person. So who can speak the Bhagavad Gita? Only God could speak the Bhagavad Gita. No ordinary philosophers. <laughs> and even ordinary philosophers, they'll take the Bhagavad Gita and they want to propound their own philosophy using Bhagavad Gita. Because it's such an amazing book. I mean, you can read the Bhagavad Gita again and again and again and again and again, and every time you read it, you get newer and newer realizations. And certainly no ordinary person could speak the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, it's, it's, at least that was my feeling. You know, when I was going to university and I read Bhagavad Gita, I said, whoever spoke this book has got to be God. <laughs> there, there can't, there's no other option. And Prabhupada says here, also Krishna is accepted by the great authorities. And that's not a trivial thing. Whatever great men do, common men follow. I mean, it's interesting, Prabhupada's list here, Vyasdeva, Sita, Narada, which of course comes from the 10th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, that's Arjuna's list. Then he also lists more contemporary persons, Madhva, Shankara, Ramanuja, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Then he's specifically listing people in the Gaudiya line, Jiva Goswami, Vishnu Chakravati, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati. Uh, obviously, different followers of the Vedas will accept some of these and not others. So people in other outside the Gaudiya Sampradaya would not be accepting Vishnu Chakravati. And people uh, even in the Gaudiya Sampradaya might not accept Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati. Certainly they accept Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So if he's kind of like going in... Uh, in an order. You know, anybody who follows the Vedas is going to accept Vyasdevala, Sita, and Narada. Then, depending on what Sampradaya you're in, you're going to accept Madhva, Sankaracharya, Ramanuja, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Then, if you're in the Gaudiya Sampradaya, you'd be accepting Jiva Goswami, Vishwanath Chakravati. And then, if you're in the line from Bhakti Siddhanta, you'd be accepting Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati. Of course, for people outside of the Vedic path, None of these people would even be recognizable. You know, we go out on the street and distribute first canto Bhagavatams, and if somebody reads, these are the authoritative persons who's accepted that Krishna is God, you'd say, oh, I don't know where you are, who you? So for myself, as a American teenager, the person who convinced me was George Harrison. Oh, George Harrison of the Beatles, he says Krishna is God, Krishna must be God. <laughs> when Prabhupada doesn't list him in this have George Harrison in this list but it's it's a fact that if some authority says someone we respect says that Krishna is God so that's part of our evidence that Krishna is God and then Prabhupada talks about how Krishna is perfect as a hero a householder, a teacher and as a renouncer Krishna is such a great hero always saving his devotees from so many dangers including Kunti a perfect householder 
So an ordinary person, an ordinary man, cannot have one woman be totally satisfied. Even if you have a wonderful marriage, I'm sorry to say, your wife will not say, my husband perfectly satisfies me in all respects. Ah, nor can any woman say, I perfectly satisfy my husband in all respects. But Krishna can perfectly satisfy 16,108 women. Why only that? Krishna can perfectly satisfy billions and billions and billions of women. And each one is perfectly satisfied. He says, yes, I have the perfect husband. Krishna is perfect as the teachers. We're mentioning Bhagavad Gita. Of course, there's also the Uddhava Gita and the Chatur Slok to Lord Brahma, that Krishna is the teacher of everything. And as a renouncer, as Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Krishna is also the perfect renouncer. And then we have other incarnations, as Prabhupada mentions here, Rama, the great hero, Rama, who fights for dharma, rescues his wife, slays the evildoer, overcomes all obstacles, upholds truth, the, the perfect hero. Therefore, people have been reciting the Ramayana for millions of years. Nasingadev, the personification of ferocity, also justice, saving the abused, innocent child from the demon who seeks to destroy the universe and use it for his own purposes, who comes as half-man, half-lion, Varaha, who saves the earth. The earth falls out of its orbit, you know. And people are so eager to hear. Everyone, Prabhupada makes this point in many places, they're eager to hear about the pastimes of some hero, but who is more heroic than Varaha or Nisinga or Ram? So to hear about such great persons by following the authorities, to use our logic and reason in the, as subordinate to devotion and revelation. And Prabhupada makes the point at the end of this purport that if we want to know God, we should engage in visiting places of worship. And he doesn't just say temples of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Of course, when Srila Prabhupada wrote this purport, there was no International Society for Krishna Consciousness. But he doesn't even just say only temples of the Gaudiya Mat. He doesn't just say uh, temples of the Gaudiya Sampradaya. He doesn't even just say temples of the Vaishnava Sampradayas. He says temples, mosques, or churches. So if we want to understand God, we should engage in regular worship. And Prabhupada says that such regular worship is as beneficial for ordinary persons as the meditation of the yogis is for them. So one doesn't see God simply through yogic meditation in some solitary place, but one can see God and understand God by going to the places of worship according to various religions of the world. This mood of Srila Prabhupada was one of the main factors for me in wanting to become his disciple and wanting to follow him. That most religions of the world teach that our religion is the only true religion, everybody else is going to hell, you have to accept our particular dogma. Uh, Srila Prabhupada does not say that. Srila Prabhupada does not say that one has to accept the particular dogma of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu or the particular dogma even of the Vaishnava Sampradayas in order to know and love God. He doesn't say that. He says that one can know and love God uh, through if one is obedient to any tradition. He would say that if you're a follower of Jesus, 
if you obey the instructions of Jesus, you can also know and love Krishna. That you're not you're not uh, restricted. Of course, Bhaktivinoda Thakur said the same thing. So this is something that I find very wonderful. And many times we will have big arguments about dogma, but that doesn't seem to be the primary factor, as Srila Prabhupada is saying here in this purport. Therefore, of course, we should think that such places of worship are very important. Prabhupada says, only foolish people decry the establishment of such places of worship. And Srila Prabhupada taught us to have such worship in our own home, that everyone can have a sacred place in their home and engage in regular worship. And such worship helps to counteract all of these problems. So let us be humble and accept the authority of the Lord, give up sinful activities, let us hear from the authorities with love and an open heart, not simply relying on our sense perception and logic. Let us revel in the activities of the Lord, let us relish his wonderful heroic activities. If we take these heroic activities of the Lord and we allow this nectar to enter into our ear, as Srila Prabhupada said in these places of worship, that we we are bowing down before the Lord, we are hearing from the saintly persons in those places, then we can actually see God. And Prabhupada would say we can see God and talk to him face to face, just like we talk to each other, because he's certainly here. When we develop love, then Krishna wants to reveal himself. He's eager to reveal himself to us. And that is actually the way to see God beyond this curtain Kunti talks about. Now, Krishna has to open this curtain of Maya and reveal, yes, uh, this is who I am beyond the disguise of this dancing actor. So, questions, comments? Um, great class. I mean, we were there from start to finish. Uh, I really like the, uh, the segment on logic, reason, and induction. Um, you know, I, during these classes, I sometimes write notes. I have a lot of notes on this one. But uh, towards the end, it was kind of interesting the way this uh, purport ends. Uh, Prabhupada ends his purport. For less intelligent persons bowing down before the authority of the Lord is generally done in the temples, mosques, and churches. Uh, it, this is as beneficial as it is for an advanced devotee to meditate upon the Lord by active service. So that, that, that's a, uh, an incredible statement. And, and you said something that uh, resonated with that towards the end of the class, but it, it reminded me of something that, you know, we have Kanista Adhikaris, and that crosses over into our, um, you know, 
devotional community worldwide. And generally, the Kanista Adhikaris feel God's presence in the temple. But, you know, they, they walk out of the temple and then uh, they don't see God in another person's heart and, or, you know, that he's everywhere. So you have to get to the mudyam stage for that. But um, one thing you said about following, it's interesting, I come from a Catholic background, so I didn't have a problem with Bhagavad Gita or the Krishna conception of Godhead with deities, etc. But um, there is this other thing about uh, some people get into the instructions of Jesus or they get muted in such a, you know, an exclusive way that the best that they can hope for is that they will go to Jesus. You know, that's their perfection. And of course, there are vegetarian Christians, so there's a gradation there, but um, following, you know, that Yatamat Tatapat thing that, that Radha, the Ram Krishna mission was, you know, trying to promote this idea of all paths lead to the same goal. But if you, even if you chant mantras within the Vedic system, if you chant, chant Om Shivaya Namaha, you're going to Shiva. If you chant uh, Krishna's or Narayan's name or Krishna's name, there's destinations connected with those mantras. So if someone is caught up in Christianity or, you know, in a, in a narrow way, uh, that's the best they can hope for is to go to Jesus, isn't it? No problem. I figured out what I could do in the future to fix that. This is a very, very interesting question. You know, to what extent is a person's destination limited by the group with which they affiliate themselves? To what extent can a person's ability to reach Krishna in Goloka Vrindavan be dependent on what particular dogma they associate themselves with? And I don't know if there's one answer to that question. There's a statement by Krishna Das Kaviraj that you, one has to accept Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Then, of course, when Bhaktivinoda Thakur has this book where all of the Sampradayacharyas do indeed meet Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in, in some sort of a mystic way and do indeed accept him. Srila Prabhupada, when, was at, when he was asked about this acceptance of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he says that one cannot attain the higher rasas without acceptance of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. You mentioned about Lord Shiva. That's a different category. So if you're worshipping someone who's not God, that's different than talking about different levels and kinds of worshipping God. In the second canto of the Bhagavatam, Srila Prabhupada defines the second offense on chanting as making any discrimination between different names of God, saying one name of God is better than another. He says all names of God are names of God. Then, of course, we have on the other side where Prabhupada will sometimes quote from Shastra that a thousand names of Vishnu are equal in potency to three names of Ram, which are equal in potency to one name of Krishna. 
And we have Bhaktivinoda Thakur who talks about the secondary names of God and the primary names of God. So I wrote an article on this for Back to Godhead some time ago. That this, In fact, that article took me literally a year and a half to write because it's very, very complex. I mean, if you say, hey, not, oh, Lord, is that a secondary name or is it a primary name? Well, it depends on you. The gopis are also saying, hey, not, but it's, they're certainly not saying that in, in the sense of a secondary name. The secondary names are the Lord is understood only in relationship to this world, whereas the primary names are in relationship to the Lord in his own abode. What we see practically is that people, in ver- people can be functioning on a low level in a high religion and people can be functioning on a high level in a low religion, although generally we expect that people cannot function on a high level in a low religion, although we certainly know they can function on a low level in a high religion. A basic simple analogy is a school. So there's nursery schools, then there's elementary or or primary schools, secondary or high schools, and there's undergraduate study and there's graduate study. Now we may generally assume that people can only attain in knowledge and skills to the highest level offered by the institution that they're in. And we might also generally assume that everybody in the institution is functioning at at least the uh, a minimum level, but neither is true. So in any ed- educational institution, you are going to find, unless it's very small, unless there's only like three people in it, but in any substantial educational institution, you are going to find some individuals who are functioning beyond what's being taught in that institution. And in any institution, you're going to be finding some members who are functioning below, sometimes way below, the minimum competency expected of anyone in that institution. For example, if you go to an elementary school, you you might find somebody there functioning at a PhD level, particularly mathematics. It happens. You know, there's some 10-year-old kid who's doing PhD level mathematics, even though nobody taught him. It does happen. And conversely, it happens. I'm sure you could go to Harvard and MIT and Oxford and find people who are just partying and drinking and not learning anything. So the same thing also happens. You can be in the Gaudiya Vaishnava Sampradaya and you can learn about Krishna and Vrindavan and Krishna with the gopis and this highest level and you might be functioning on an entirely different level. You might be functioning on a Karmakanda level even, not even a Karma Yoga level. That's entirely possible. Not only is it possible, but I'm sure and certain that it happens. You might even be functioning on a V-karma level. You could be ostensibly a member of some Vaishnava Sangha and you could be a criminal. In fact, that happens. It happens even in Krishna Leela where criminals dress up as devotees. It certainly happens today that people appear to be in a, in a high Sangha of Vaishnavas and they're V-karmis, they're criminals, or they're karmis, or they're really interested in salvation or something like that. That's entirely possible. Or they're interested in Narayan. So, yes. So I have one, I, I know of some uh, members of ISKCON who are interested in Narayan and Vaikuntha and are not interested in Krishna and Vrindavan. I, I know of some members who are interested in Krishna and Dwarka and not in Krishna and Vrindavan. I mean, that's entirely possible. 
And if you were mentioning about the Christian tradition, so if we look in the Christian tradition, we will find persons who exhibit the symptoms of bhava and prema and who are writing about higher rasas with God. St. John of the Cross, St. Teresa of Avila, they're writing about Madhurya Prem. And they're exhibiting symptoms that are described as bhava. So how is that? You know, that, of course, those teachings are there in the Bible. They are there in the Bible. And Jesus talks about Madhurya Prem, and certainly King Solomon does. The Song of Solomon is all about Madhurya Prem. But it's not very accessible. Most people in that tradition don't really understand it. You know, they have, again, a, pure, a poor fund of knowledge. So in general, people in an elementary school only attain to that level of an elementary school. And in general, the people in the MIT you know, computer program are functioning at a very high level. But that doesn't seem to be an absolute thing. Krishna is independent and Bhakti is independent. And Krishna is responding to the desires of the living entity. So it's interesting, in St. Teresa of Avila's book, she, she'll write how the truth is far beyond what most Christians imagine. And of course, Jesus himself said that. But now what I find particularly fascinating about her writing is that she still adheres to Christian dogma. So if we were to meet St. Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross, they wouldn't describe the Siddhanta exactly the way that we would. And yet they were apparently experiencing the highest or close to the highest levels of realization. So that's just sort of an interesting thing. But generally speaking, generally speaking, if somebody's in a system that's only teaching salvation or only teaching about Vaikuntha or something or material heaven, generally speaking, the participants are not going to attain beyond that. that that's generally going to be the case because they're going to be stuck with this processor and this purport a poor fund of knowledge that will be limiting their ability to aspire and to desire because everything is ultimately based on desire. So it's pretty hard to desire something you don't know anything about. Of course, the caveat is that Tesham Satatayuktanam Bajacham Pritipurvakam Dadami Yuri Yogam Tamyenamam Upayanti Te Tesham Evenukam Paktam Aham Aginajam Ta'a Nasayam Yatam Babo Stoganadi Pena Bashvata. That there's Chaitaguru, there's Krishna in the heart, and that he can reveal to a sincere worshiper anything he wants to reveal. Krishna is not limited by the external affiliation of a person. And that's, that's there. I hope that answers your question, instead of just muddying the water further. Saying it was a wonderful class. I, I have something else if nobody else has. Yeah. Uh, is there anybody Hare else who'd like to ask something? Krishna, Irma Um It was a very good class, and I just have one very quick question. The reference 
I didn't hear the reference to the verse you looked up uh, and read to us about how Krishna gives different conclusions to different people, and so we can never come to an absolute conclusion. What was the reference for that verse? 6431 Srimad Bhagavatam. 6431. Thank you so much. Hare Krishna Saraswati Thakur was in my mind during your class that said, don't act in such a way so that you can see God, act in such a way so that God can see you. Well, certainly. Yes, and, and thank you for bringing that up. Basically, all of the problems listed in this verse and purport that prevent us from seeing God are ways that either people don't want to see God or ways that they're trying to see God by their own power. So one of those two things are functioning as far as what prevents us from seeing God. Either I don't want to see God, stay behind, stay behind the curtain, don't come out from behind the curtain and disturb my little illusion here, or yes, I want to see God, but I'm going to see him by my own power. I'm going to see him by my own intelligence. Um, and not mentioned here, but you know, I can, I'm going to see him by my own piety or whatever. I'm going to see him by my own practice. Whereas the way to see God is by devotion and submissive hearing and a loving attitude by which then God says, oh, here's someone that I want to see. And this is, again, true even in our human relations. If you want to see somebody, you need to act in such a way that they want to see you. You know, it's quite interesting in, in human relationships that sometimes person A will say to person B, you know, why don't you want to be with me? How come you don't like me? Why don't you want to spend time with me? And the more they do that, the more person B is like, I don't want to spend time with this person. <laughs> and it's quite interesting. Sometimes you'll tell somebody, you know, I was telling it my one of my grandchildren this the other day. I said, when you act like this, people don't want to be around you. It's not the way you act if you want people to want your company. And the child's just argued with me. Well, I'm not really like that. <laughs> you know? And I said, that's not the way to respond. The way to respond is, oh, really? Let me understand what I'm doing. That's upsetting people and annoying people so that I can adjust my behavior to please them. So the mood of the devotee is how can I act in such a way that Krishna will be pleased? And all these ways that prevent us from seeing God are ways, ultimately, the reason they prevent us from seeing God is that Krishna says, I really don't want to reveal myself to such a person. It's, he has his, his likes and dislikes. Of course, the best way for God to want to see you is not only to be the kind of person that he wants, which we've been studying Bhagavad Gita 12, 13 through 20, but also, as Krishna says, at the end of Bhagavad Gita, to help others to come to him. Because what Krishna ultimately wants is that all the jivas are reveling in unlimited joy of bhakti. So if we facilitate that not only for ourselves, but for, the, but for others, then Krishna wants to see us. 
Okay, I'm going to stop now. Thank you very much. All glories to Shilpa Prabhupada.